Let's just get a preliminary sound check. Loud and clear in the back. someone who's near the back of the room could close the doors.
So, uh, happy Thanksgiving. My mom passed away in 2019, but her favorite holiday was Thanksgiving because she liked to feed people, and that was the one day where no one could put a limit on what she would do. So it would be a 12-course traditional American turkey stuffings, gravy, all that stuff, and then a 12-course Indian meal. (laughs) And I'm an only child, so ever since... (laughs) That wasn't supposed to be a punchline, but it is pretty funny. (laughs) She would invite, you know, 25, 30 people over. But as an only child, I felt it my duty to show up for her favorite holiday. So from the time I left home at the age of 18 to go to college, I went home wherever they were every year for Thanksgiving. And in 2013, I thought, you know, I really would like to come to the retreat at Spirit Rock over Thanksgiving because when you work full time, it's only, you know, three days off. It's not a busy work work week, two holidays built in. And, uh, So at the end of Thanksgiving in 2013, I asked my mom, I was just floating a balloon. I said, how would you feel if next year I went to Spirit Rock instead of coming to Thanksgiving? And her face dropped. It was really like, and then she said, okay, you can go to Spirit Rock, but then you have, we have to have two Thanksgivings. (laughs) So I came to this retreat in 2014, which was the first year that TNK taught it and have been at this retreat every year since. Um, And it's profoundly changed my life, so thanks, Mom, wherever you are. So a young monk went to a monastery, and uh, after his initiation, he was put to work, and his job in the monastery was uh, transcribing the copying the ancient texts. So they would have these ancient texts. They would just, you know, copy them as a way of duplicating them. This is in the ancient times, long before Xerox machines. And uh, he was a clever, intelligent young man. So he, he asked the head monk, the abbot, you know, we're, we're copying from copies. So, like, there could be a mistake in here, and we would just be propagating that mistake and... At first, the elder monk said, this is the way we've been doing it for centuries. But then he thought about it. You know, the kid's right. You know, I should probably just go down and look at the original ancient texts. And then uh, he was down in the cellar or basement for a long time. And finally, the young monk who raised this issue got concerned and said, uh, went down there. And he saw the elder monk kind of like sobbing and doing this and saying... We forgot the R, we forgot the R, we forgot the R. And he said, what, uh, Master, what's the, uh, what's the issue? He said, the word is celebrate. And I, I think sometimes things do get a little lost in translation, like the misconception that Don spoke about, that the Buddha taught that life is suffering. Another thing you often hear is that the Buddha taught that there is no self, 
this statement is quite perplexing. I'm a self, you're a self, and I have an itch. I don't scratch your cheek. When I'm thirsty, I don't give you water. I spent a lot of money on therapy to get a better sense of self. (laughs) Now you're telling me it's all wasted. (laughs) So tonight I'm going to explore the teaching of of anatta or not-self. And just to say we have folks in the room who have been practicing for many decades, who've heard this teaching again and again, and we have people in the room for whom it's probably the first time hearing this. So I'm going to try to speak on different levels, and you can just uh, take what comes and trust that um, what's important will be repeated, and you'll have... uh, actually kind of need to hear these teachings again and again for them to penetrate. So the wanderer Vachagota directly asked the Buddha, is there a self? And the Buddha remained silent. Then he asked, is there no self? And again, the Buddha remained silent. Then Vachagota got up and left. He didn't get the memo that says you're supposed to ask three times. And the brother relents. So Ananda asked the brother, why did you not answer this question? And the brother said, if I said there is a self, would this be consistent with my teaching that all dharmas are not self? So this is key. All dharmas, all phenomenon are not self. Or you could say dharmas are empty of self. Like... Wetness is a characteristic of water. Self is a characteristic. And the Buddha is saying that all dharmas are empty of the characteristic of self. So whenever we talk about emptiness, there has to be something that is emptied out, um, something that the thing is empty of. Often it's implied to mean empty of self or empty of any fixed characteristic. Then the brother goes on to say, if I say there is no self, Vachagota would become even more bewildered. Does the self I used to have now not exist? The brother is acknowledging that we have this sense of self that we go through the world with. Just to emphasize how this is not the right question, he says, to answer would lead to a false belief, a jungle of false beliefs, a desert of false beliefs, a thorny spike of false beliefs, an agitation of false beliefs, and a fetter of false beliefs. He goes on to say, if I said there was a self, I'd be siding with the eternalists. And if I said no, I'd be siding with the annihilationists. And if you read the Pali Canon, you'll see that the Buddha often explored or interacted with or commented on teachings that were being discussed at his time. It was actually quite an interesting thing to look at these teachings and see what people were debating. Buddha goes on to say, everything exists, this is one extreme. Nothing exists, this is another extreme. Not approaching either extreme, the Tathagata, the way the Buddha referred to himself, the Tathagata teaches you a doctrine by the middle. And this doctrine by the middle is 
the Ticca Samuppada, the 12 chains of dependent origination that we have chanted. But rather than taking a stance on existence or non-existence, the Buddha points out that things exist based on conditions. From this, that arises. From the absence of this, that ceases. And everything that we can call a thing is conditioned in this way. Its presence is conditional. And this conditionality is so important because it points us to investigate how our suffering is constructed and conditioned. We can see the causes and conditions that lead to our suffering and then learn to unwind them by creating more favorable conditions. The quote that Adam shared in the Q&A, a position, Bhachagota, is something that the the Tagata has done away with. I love that. We can get so caught in our positions and our views and our ideas that the Tagata has done away with positions. What the Tagata sees, quoting him again, such as form, such as origination, such as such as form, such as its origination, such as its disappearance, such as feeling, such as its origination, such as its disappearance, such as perception and its disappearance, such as consciousness and its dis- origin and disappearance. So uh, not self is something you need to believe. In fact, but it seemed to be discouraging any kind of belief, but really something that one can experience in meditation. It's one of the three sort of classical important insights along with the truth of dukkha, the unsatisfactory of these conditioned um, things, and anicca, that all these conditioned things are inconstant. So all conditioned things, all dharmas are subject to these three characteristics of being empty of self, not satisfactory, and in constant flux. Part of the path, I think, is to learn actually to live in harmony with these natural laws. So if I hold up my hand and I say, does the fist exist? As soon as that you posit that the fist exists, then I open my hand. And as soon as you posit that the open hand exists, I close my fist. Fist is not so much a thing as a compilation of conditions, the curling of the hand, the wrapping of the thumb. There's a sutta I love, the Vajira Sutta, where... uh, Nun is in deep meditation, and then Mara, who's the kind of the mischievous embodiment of greed, hatred, and delusion, is trying to scare her and um, steal her samadhi. And so he starts asking her these questions. Where is the maker of this being? Where has this being arisen? Where does this being cease? Vajira was on to... Mara, so she replied to him, why now do you assume a being? Mara, have you grasped a view? This is a heap of sheer constructions. Here no being is found. 
just as with an assemblage of parts, the word chariot is used. So when the aggregates are present, there's the convention of being. So these aggregates that we chanted in the heart of the Prajnaparamita Sutta, form, feeling, cognition, formation, and consciousness, these processes that manifest in this experience we have as being a person. So the chariot, I'm going to follow Don's lead and I'm going to update it because I don't know that much about chariots, but say we have a car. And um, where is the carness in the car? Is it in the wheel? Is it in the gear shift? Is it in the seat? If I take out the seats, is it still a car? You can't really point to anything in the car that is the essence of car. And so the car is empty of any fixed characteristic. Gil Fransdell sometimes says, if we left with someone else's shoes, the shoes wouldn't care. The my is a, is a concept created in the mind that's not inherent in the shoe. And this is what Kinesara was pointing to last night, that we often don't see things the way they are. We see the world overlaid with ideas and concepts and assumptions and in a very legitimate way, uh, effort to make meaning of this world, to locate on ourselves, it's so easy to get lost. And if we live in a virtual world that's only words and concepts and ideas, it's kind of like memorizing the menu but never actually tasting the food. So Dogen says, stop searching for phrases and chasing after words. Take the backward step. This is the movement into mindfulness. Take the backward step and turn the light inward. Your body mind itself will drop away and your original face will appear. If you want to attain just this, immediately practice just this. So just this, this question we've been positing, what's happening now? What's the truth of this moment? So the Buddha won't say there's a self. He won't say there's no self. Yet he talks about himself, and he uses words like yourself. So there's kind of a paradox here. Uh, And to get around this paradox... um, there's hints of this in the Pali Canon, but really I think it was Nagarjuna, the Mahayana philosopher who he attributes to the Buddha, but he talks in terms of two, two truths. Say that fast ten times. There's conventional or mundane truth, which is mostly how we experience the world. And then there's ultimate truth where we can get glimpses of in our meditation and connect with in practice. So, Mr. Gadatta says, famous quote, wisdom says I am nothing, love says I am everything. Between these two, my life moves. 
Ramdas says, you need to remember your Buddha nature and your social security number. If you only remember your social security number, the amount in your bank account, and the items on your to-do list, you live as a materialist and you lose out on the mystery and the glory of life along with all its suffering. On the other hand, if you do a spiritual bypass and try to just be love and light and so forth, you miss your humanity. Our spiritual life depends on knowing that we are both consciousness itself and wholly flawed and human. And our practice is to learn to love both. So both these truths reflect reality, but it's, they involve different ways of seeing. And I'm mostly going to talk this evening in terms of conventional reality, because that's more useful for practice, and also I can avoid having to use air quotes every time I use the word self. I actually listened to, watched a 45-minute Dharma talk with the teacher every time he said self. He did air quotes. <laughs> One useful way that uh, I find to talk about anatta or not self is to talk about selfing as a verb, an activity of the mind. So on a, another retreat recently, I was walking into the room to give a talk, and one of the retreatants motioned me over and uh, whispered in my ear in a slightly ominous tone, this better be good. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I got the joke. I like to think I have a sense of humor. I found it funny. I was laughing. And then I noticed a kind of like what... Matthew Brent Silver calls a spasm of self. It's like this, like a muscle spasm. I could feel it happening, but I was helpless to prevent it from happening. And this, the field was just filled with this like enormous self-consciousness, a kind of self-consciousness that makes it hard to be honest or authentic or vulnerable in any way like a palpable barrier to any kind of intimacy and a tension, the need to defend and the need to perform, to meet some expectation as it relates to how I perceive myself, how I want to be perceived, fear. I remember this thought, decades from now, people will be saying, remember that talk Luke gave? 2013, wow, he really tanked that one. <laughs> Legend, the stuff of legends. I normally don't get nervous uh, when I, sometimes I'm nervous before the talk, but as soon as I see the faces, these beautiful, meditated faces, that all falls away. But in this moment, there was just like this nervousness. And I remember thinking, like, in this moment, I'm reduced to the mental list of my pros and cons. This is like an incredible, incredibly painful place to be. This experience uh, or perception of self and not self are constantly ebbing and flowing as we go through life. 
we can learn how to use the perception or experience of self skillfully and how the sense of not-self can be used skillfully. You notice the conditions that give rise to a strong sense of self. And we can notice the conditions in which the sense of self can be more background or we can be so less sort of less self-obsessed. So the Buddha described various selfing activities and each responds to uh, corresponds to a kind of clinging. Gil Fransdale again, uh, it's not the self that's clinging, but rather it's from the clinging the sense of self arises. It's not the self that's clinging, but rather from the clinging the sense of self arises. And when there's clinging, there's, there's dukkha, there's suffering. So the first kind of selfing activity is taking something as me or mine. And I love the quote from Suzuki Roshi, he was, uh, there's an iconic photograph actually capturing him saying this. He took off his glasses and he was kind of holding them like this and he said, these glasses don't belong to me. You know about my tired eyes, so you let me use them. And certainly we all know the pitfalls of being attached to physical objects or possessions. You know, when they get lost or they get stolen or they get damaged and we suffer. Also, the mind sometimes just gets dissatisfied. You know, we get one thing and then we want the next. We tend to overestimate how satisfied we'll be when we get that thing. It's like when you're a single person and you meet that soulmate. Positive that distant lifetime, you were lovers, reunited again. And a month goes by, and you realize why you haven't kept in touch for 2,000 years. (laughs) (laughs) Taking this body to be me, And if this body is me, then what if my appendix is removed? Still me. A few teeth fall out, is that still me? Just like with the chariot, you can't point to any place in this being, this body, this form, that is the essence of me. If I take this body as mine, and then the body ages, and it can't do all that it used to do, there are aches and pains, then I suffer more taking it as mine. And anything we take as me or mine, wherever we plant that flag, there's no ground for that flag to stay planted because it's all constant, rising and passing away. From the Dhammapada, fully knowing the arising and passing of the aggregates one attains joy and delight. For those who know, this is the deathless. Sometimes the form of ownership we take is subtle. My place in the hall, my cushion, my walking path. And even though it's not really my cushion, if somebody takes it, 
Oh, no. A few years ago, I had to mediate a Vipassana vendetta (laughs) that involved a backjack that was highly contested. (laughs) And the whole thing was happening through notes, so it was even (laughs) funnier in that way. Another selfing activity that the Buddha spoke about is conceit. Uh, Conceit is creating a self primarily through comparison. We define ourselves in comparison to others or in comparison to some value or ideal. And in Buddhism, unlike the English word, conceit sort of means I'm better than you. But in Buddhism, it's uh, better than, worse than, or same as. The first time I heard this teaching, I was like, better than, same as, worse than, doesn't that, like, what's left? (laughs) (laughs) I think the Buddha would probably say that it's better that we just don't engage in that comparison, with one notable exception that I'll talk about later. I feel like our society is very much set up in a way that promotes this conceit. You know, like we have ideals in our society about how you should look and how you should uh, dress and how you should uh, you know, have a million talents that you can demonstrate on Instagram. And we're all measuring ourselves against these, you know, like extraordinary people. And I see this a lot in people of like the generation of my friends' kids where their whole sense of self is wrapped up in this constant comparison. And then it also dovetails with like a very legitimate fundamental need to feel like we belong, to feel like we are valuable. So there's a place to place a lot of care. And when you notice the comparing mind, even while you're here, anybody have any comparisons (laughs) to... um, First, to feel the feeling of comparing mind. You know, there's dukkha in it. And then to um, maybe change the channel. Another kind of selfing is the way in which we take birth in an identity. Hidasaro talked a lot about this, how we become the anxious one or the hopeless one, and how that attitude or that identity gets kind of reified and solidified. It becomes very difficult if I'm the anxious one to feel a moment of calm. A lot of these identities come out of a kind of loyalty to our suffering. Both Don and Adam use this phrase, loyal to their suffering. So this is from The Onion. Inspired man bolts out of bed at 3 a.m. to jot down a great new worry. Patterson, New Jersey, quickly kicking off his sheets and reaching for a notepad on his nightstand, local 27-year-old Kyle Dowling reportedly sprang out of bed at 3 a.m. to jot down an idea for a brand new worry. Sometimes the best, most crippling new anxieties just come to you in the middle of the night, so it's good to have a pad to record them, said Dowling. If I think of a paralyzing new new fear, and I don't write it down, there's a good chance I'll totally forget about it (laughs) by the time I wake up. 
So rather than taking on these identifications, um, we can just turn the mind back to what's happening now. There's tingling, there's vibration. When anxiety is present, it can be known in a knowing that is not anxious. When fear is present, fear can be known in a knowing that is fearless. Grief being known in a knowing that is not sad. Perhaps the most pernicious of version of selfing is attachment to views, the need to be right, and the machinations that the mind will go through to be right, you know, to discard obvious data to the contrary, to vilify all those that disagree. This attachment to views is the root of almost all conflict between people. This force is so strong, and we see it manifesting all over, all the time, terrible ways. This is where spiritual friendship is really helpful, like to have friends that can point it out when you're attached to a view, like the like the Buddha did for Ananda. The Buddha said, those who cling to perceptions and views wander the world offending people. And you can notice that mostly we're not a single self, more like a committee. What self is present when I'm here in front of the room? When I'm with family? When I'm with friends? When I'm a son or a spouse? or when I'm a lawyer, or an expert in something. Or the self that thrives on that hit of dopamine every time you people laugh. (laughs) (laughs) And which of these selves arouse more wholesome qualities, and which of these don't? Can we bring awareness to which of my many selves is present in this moment? And then also develop agency to rouse our best self for the circumstances. So the the teaching can be easily misunderstood. We might think that not self means we have to get rid of the self. Self is bad, or we diminish ourselves in some way, make ourselves smaller, try to be a nobody. I hear practitioners sometimes talking about crushing the ego and trying to be egoless, which is actually just another activity of selfing, (laughs) trying to measure up to that ideal. Years ago at a Dharma center, I met someone um, who went through incredible verbal gymnastics to avoid saying, I, me, or mine. And I, I think this actually would be like a really interesting experiment for like a day just to see how much those words show up in our conversation. But this guy did it for a week. <laughs> and so it ends up being completely ridiculous because he says things like, having entered the dining room, food was consumed. Great enjoyment was experienced.
Also, the view of not-self can be a way to kind of paper over or spiritually bypass. Identity is not empty for the racist or the misogynist or the bigot. And the effects of those views is, are real and pernicious. And we could say that racism, homophobia, ageism, misogyny, or any other repressive regime are phenomena that are empty of any inherent existence or concepts. And the I that is impacted also has the character of myself. So some people take that to say, oh, well, no big deal. We could say the same thing about sickness or trauma or any other life-challenging experience. This is a huge misunderstanding. I've seen well-intentioned teachers use such words, but I think they actually can be quite harmful. We can't leapfrog over the relative into the absolute. The suffering that comes from the complexity of identity and our life experience is suffering that is to be known. Seminal teaching of the Buddha know that suffering, to understand it. And only once that suffering is somewhat metabolized can this inside of not-self be liberative. Some of the wounds that we have from being racialized or marginalized or healed, then we can step into a liberative sense of these are just concepts empty of any inherent characteristic. I think the the liberative insight of not-self actually comes more easily when there's a kind of basic sense of a healthy psychological self, a self that's well-developed, somewhat actualized, a self that loves itself is less likely to arise in painful words than the self that we're in contention with. The insights come with knowing the self and accepting the self as we experience it. So the experience or perception of not-self is quite profound, one of the central insights of practice. To see that I am not my thoughts, I am not my emotions, I am not my states of mind, to not identify with the hindrances, to not take birth in whatever energies are passing through consciousness, to not take personally the very real struggles of being a human being incarnated in a human body. And sometimes this can happen in dramatic ways in a meditative experience, the sense of me dropping away even for a moment. Sometimes it's more mundane. The sound of the annoying mouth breather suddenly becomes just sound, just hearing. You can notice how the preoccupation with self diminishes in a breathtaking moment with natural beauty, being in awe or wonder with another being in intimate, close connection being absorbed in some activity. When we feel safe enough, the sense of self can thin out because there's nothing to defend against. 
my personal theory is this is why it's so easy to become addicted to video games, social media, Netflix, that there is some absorption in those activities that lets us forget our self-obsession for even a little bit. I think the Buddha would probably say that samadhi has the same effect without all the minuses of those other activities, which superficially might distract us from our self-preoccupation, but all those things create agitation in the mind. So this sense of I am persists actually till full awakening. We're all on this wheel of becoming, taking birth most of the time, becoming, creating a self, being born again into each moment. So why not make the most of this? Um, We can start by using conceit skillfully. So there's a sutta in which the Ananda goes to meet a nun and uh, she's trying to be a good nun. So she's trying to give up desire, she's trying to give up conceit. And uh, Ananda says, relying on conceit, you should give up conceit. You hear about so-and-so and they have, quote, realized the undefiled freedom of heart and freedom by wisdom in this very life. And you think, well, if they can do it, so can I. This comparison, this conceit, I'm as good as, allows one to have faith. So we use conceit to build faith, and then after some time, we give up receipt. Conceit, we use conceit as a tool. And then when we don't need the tool anymore, we discard it. It's like the story of a raft being kind of a metaphor for the path, and when you've crossed to the other side, you can abandon the raft. Tenisara Bhikkhu talks about three versions of the self that appear in the teachings that can be useful. First is the sense of self as doer, the agent, the one that makes things happen. And we do have some control over uh, these skandhas, khandhas, processes that constitute the sense of self. The second sense of self is that of the recipient or the consumer. The self as doer engages in practice and the self as recipient reaps the benefits of that practice. And the third sense of self is the commentator or director, the inner narrator, sometimes we refer to as the inner critic. So keep the doer on the path of practice. The Buddha says, your own self is your own mainstay. For who else could your mainstay be? With you yourself, when well-trained, you obtain a mainstay that is hard to obtain. Evil is done by oneself. By oneself, one is defiled. Evil is undone by oneself. By oneself is one cleansed. I'm not well trained in reading Pali, but I did read this in Pali, and every time he uses the word self, it's atta. It's 
anatta, the thing we're negating. So he's speaking in a conventional way here. So we use this self as agent, as doer, to walk the full path, this training and wisdom and ethics and meditation. The doer got you here. <laughs> and like the uh, like conceit, you use the doer and then also remember that it's a relative truth. It's a tool, this perception of self is a convenience, and when the job is finished, the tool will be discarded. Don't take this self or any self too seriously. Then there's the self as the consumer. This is the one that enjoys the fruit of practice. And here where it's really important is to savor the fruits of practice, to notice the moments where there's no problem. kind of neutral. I heard something the other day that I'm still contemplating in a Dharma talk. The teacher was saying that the neutral Vedana is experienced as unpleasant in the absence of wisdom. But when wisdom is present, neutral Vedana is pleasing. You know, there's not a problem when Vedana is kind of neutral. So to tune into those moments where there's not a big problem or there's not a huge uh, boon. Any moment of ease, any moment of calm, any moment of joy, contentment, like take it in, let it nourish you, let it become a lodestar so that this self can encourage the doer self to keep doing. And this is where desire for awakening, desire for cultivating beautiful qualities of heart is actually useful. Like conceit, we use desire to go beyond desire. We invoke the self that basks in the goodness of Dhamma anytime we're discouraged. Then there's the self as commentator. Now, a lot has been written over the last few years about the inner critic and taming the inner critic. And, you know, often the advice is to you know not pay attention to the inner critic until it will sort of lose its steam. Uh, I have not found that strategy to be very successful. (laughs) So rather than trying to silence or get rid of the inner critic, we can train this self-commentator. One way to do this is the teaching that the Buddha gave to Rahula, his seven-year-old son, He said, whenever you want to do a bodily action, you should reflect, will this lead to self-affliction, the affliction of others, or both? Would it be unskillful with painful consequences and painful results? And if the answer is yes, then you don't do that action. And then while you're doing it, contemplate. Is it beneficial? Is it uh, harmful? If it's harmful, you stop doing it. And then after the action has been done, to reflect back and, you know, how did that go? Was that skillful? Was that unskillful? And as a way of training um, to be more skillful. The Buddha said, you should reprove yourself, you should examine yourself, 
as a self-guarded practitioner with guarded self, mindful you dwell at ease. The Buddha is saying, you know, keep an eye on yourself. Train the commentator in wise speech, speech that's kind, beneficial, timely, pleasant to hear. When you notice the inner critic taking on a stern voice, substitute a kinder voice for that. So we build up these selves again as a tool. And then as we mature on the path, they're no longer needed, so we put them down. Some of the Buddha's last words. Therefore, Ananda, dwell as a lamp unto yourself, refuge unto yourself, seeking no other refuge. With Dhamma as your lamp, Dhamma as your refuge, seeking no other refuge. There's two things I think that are happening here. One is that this sentence really only makes sense if you are Dharma, as Ajahn Chan proposed grammatically, you know, refuge unto yourself, seeking no other refuge, Dharma as your refuge, seeking no other refuge. And the other thing is happening is that the Buddha is talking about yourself as this highly trained resource the self that has a doer that has steeped in dharma, a recipient that has encouraged that doer, and a commentator that has kept us on track. There was a uh, kind of viral news post circulating on the internet recently, and... Uh, it was about a woman who went to Iceland and she was on a kind of a tour uh, tour bus and there was they'd stopped at a scenic uh, overlook of some kind and uh, she got out of the bus and she changed her clothes and she came back and um, no one recognized her. And uh, she was only described as an Asian woman. And so I'm wondering if there was something, language issue happening here. But anyway, they... The bus driver said, we're missing an Asian woman. So they started a search party, and this woman joined the search party. (laughs) And, like, they were searching till, like, late into the night. You know, dogs were called in, and helicopters were on their way, and the equivalent of the National Guard. It was a a big deal. And then at some point late in the, early in the morning, this woman realized, oh, they're looking for me. And she, uh, so the headline was, uh, Missing Woman Finds Herself in Iceland <laughs> After Joining Her Own Search Party. And I, I love this so many ways as an expression of Dharma. <laughs> because we are looking for ourselves. And we're also often looking for what's already there, it's not missing. <laughs> The meditative practice at its heart is to know ourselves as we experience ourselves. 
this body and all its patterning, the experiences stored in the body, the energetic movements of the body, this breath, the set of views I have, and the countless habit patterns that influence me, the places where we experience suffering and the places where we experience freedom. And we learn to know ourselves through all these things which are not self. And when we fully realize the truth of not self, that there is no self to be found in any phenomenon, there's no boundary to this thing we call ourself, it opens us to a kind of interdependence. If there's no boundary, there can, there can be no separation. Kobinchino Roshi. We sit to make life meaningful. The, the significance of our life is not experienced in striving to create some perfect thing. We must simply start with accepting ourselves. Sitting brings us back to actually who and where we are. This can be very painful. Self-acceptance is the hardest thing to do. But if we can't accept ourselves, we're living in ignorance. The mind has no light, so we cannot see. Practice is this candle in our very darkest room. We can just end with a chant. Oh, my. listening, have a period of walking for half an hour, and if you have energy, another sit at nine o'clock. Don't wait for me. (laughs) I release you. (laughs) 